Welcome to All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time. Our show offers a friendly conversation with inspiring individuals in the autism community. All Autism Talk is brought to you by the Learn It family of companies, including Autism Spectrum Therapies, Trellis Services, and Desert Choice Schools, helping all children succeed in school and life. Now, here is your host, Rob Haupt. Hey, everybody. Welcome to All Autism Talk. I'm your host, Rob Haupt. I'm the uh, Executive Vice President um, of Autism Services at uh, Learn It Family of Companies, more specifically, Autism Spectrum Therapies. Um, we've been providing ABA services to families all across this country for uh, officially now 17 years. Um, really cool to be here again. Today we're going to be joined by our good friend, Dr. Hannah Rue. Um, and in, our, our desire today is to really talk about um, taking this concept of quality and really applying it to the day-to-day experiences of a family and, and what you as a parent receiving services should really kind of look for from the standpoint of quality and, and, and also kind of expect from your service provider. Um, what we've really found and what we've discovered over these last 17 years is that quality is much bigger than just a clinical outcome or a research study. Um, it, it encompasses so many different things. It encompasses the, the people who work with you, the people who work with your kids, um, what they bring to the table, both from a clinical knowledge point of view as well as from some softer skills, some counseling skills, some teaching skills, um, and just you know, as, as many of you out there, out there already know, um, a, a compassion, an understanding of what is going on. Um, there's billing, there's scheduling, there's um, interfacing with health plans, um, there's technology, making sure that the tools that we all have to communicate with one another, to take data, um, to program all work. Um, so there's so much that goes into this beyond just is this a clinically sound program? Um, and, and I think that's one of the interesting things about ABA um, and about any real science is the, the difference between what's on a page versus the actual application, implementation, and experience of those delivering and, and experiencing it. Um, so with all that in mind, let's say hi to Hannah. Hannah, welcome back to the show. It's good to talk to you. Great to be here, Rob. Thanks. Um, and, and I think this is kind of like a great kind of transition from some of our last few conversations. You know, we, we've spoken a lot about quality and, you know, okay, what is quality and, and how do you measure that something's effective and how do you kind of say that, oh, this is good treatment versus this is bad treatment. But I think, you know, like you and I have talked a lot about kind of offline that doesn't necessarily mean from a parent's perspective that I am receiving quality treatment. There's, there's more that goes into it. So I kind of thought maybe the, the, the place to start would maybe be to define for everybody, like who actually provides this treatment? Like if I'm a parent, who should I actually be looking to show up at my house? Um, who are they? What should their qualifications be? Like, who is this team that's actually going to be delivering all of this science that we've been talking about these last few months? Yeah, I, I do think that's a great place to start because just like any one of us as consumers of, you know, any sort of health care, you know, eye doctor, general physician, dentist, or whatnot, 
you know, most of us are going to go online and Google to make sure, you know, that the the folks are legit. You walk into the office, you know what they, you know what it should look like. You look for their certificates, you know, on the wall and such. It's a little bit different, you know, when families come into autism services because if they are getting home-based services, you know, the folks are actually coming. It, it gets pretty intimate pretty quickly because you have folks in your house now. Um, if you are doing home-based, uh, if you go into a clinic, you're still going to look for some of these same things that I'm going to talk about. But a, a, a lot of our folks start out with very young kids um, in the home environment. And I think first and foremost, what you want to do is, you know, some background research. And, you know, if you can, talk to some of your other providers, maybe your physician, um, if you have any um, friends in the community or if there are support groups, you know, talking to people about their experiences with providers in the community. A lot of, uh, a lot of folks have uh, Facebook pages. You can get to know providers there. You know, if you're doing a screening of, you know, who am I considering? start out just with some basic research. But some of the most important things that you want to look for are that these folks are credentialed. So when you are looking for a provider of applied behavior analytic uh, ABA services, you want to make sure that this provider is a board-certified behavior analyst, BCBA. Um, and you can even go on to the um, credentialing website uh, behavior, uh, BACB.org, the Behavior Analyst Certification Board, to in fact verify certification of individuals. Um, so the person who's coming into your house who's actually going to be setting up the treatment protocols and developing the plan with you, that person needs to be a board-certified behavior analyst. Now, the team of people that come in and actually provide the day-to-day -day services, the one-to-one -one interactions with your child, uh, they might also have a certification in some states that is required to be a registered behavior technician or RBT. Um, in some states, they're not, but there is a level of training that should be provided to each one of those individuals who's providing that direct care. And you can talk to the DCBA, the Board Certified Behavior Analyst, about the training that all of the staff receive. Um, so first thing to look for, BCBA. Second thing to look for is the type of training these folks get. You want to make sure that the people coming into your home, you know, have had gone through everything from, you know, some sort of a background check to, uh, you know, training on uh, applied behavior analysis to training on autism and, um you know, that they they have some experiences working with kids and that they will, you know, there is some oversight. So the folks that are working one-to-one -one with your child on a daily basis should also have supervision, should be closely monitored by the BCBA. So maybe that clinician, the BCBA clinician will not be in your home every day, but they will be uh, constantly monitoring the program. So there should be a set schedule that so you ask about, you know, who's going to be coming into my home, how frequently, what time, and on what type of schedule will this BCBA be um, working with us? Um, you know, and, and when you first start off, you, you know, you get these basics in place. You actually want to sit down and talk to people and get a good feel for, um, you know, how they're interacting with you, how they're interacting with your child. You know, think about, again, going to a dentist or a healthcare professional. You know, you have a little chit-chat with them. You get a feeling if this relationship is going to work out or not. Um, and I encourage parents to do that. You know, you might talk to a couple of different providers uh, before you settle on one. Um, and, you know, that initial uh, decision might just be the rapport that you've built with them and how well you work together with them because it's going to be um, – 
you know, you're going to be developing a pretty intense program in most cases, um, and you want to feel good about the person that you're working with. So that's, you know, the very initial steps. That's what I would tell parents to that's how you initially start out when you hit that first Google search, you know, autism treatment in your, you know, in your region, your area. So, like, let's, I want to kind of go a little bit deeper. You know, you mentioned, you mentioned the, um, the frontline certification and, and, you know, spend a little bit of time on, on the direct care, that frontline staff, um, before kind of getting more into that BCBA, um, you know, I think a lot of times the questions I always am I'm asked of from parents is, so tell me who this person is, um, and what what how are they trained to do this? I, I think we're kind of like used to this medical world where like I go I got sick I go to see a doctor, and and sometimes people kind of have that in their head or, you know, I'm going to go get to get physical therapy. So I go see a, you know, physical therapist. I go, I need a back realignment chiropractor. Sometimes they get a little thrown off by the, um, the fact that the BCBA is not the one actually doing their treatment. So can you kind of give us, give everyone a little bit more context around um, who this direct line person is kind of, how, what kind of directions or how they're implementing a program and, um, and maybe kind of go a little bit more into um, the common question I guess to get asked is, um, is certification more valuable than the training somebody receives? Right. Um, you know, what's funny is so many of us in this field, Rob, I don't know if, if this is the case for you, but so many of us started off as, you know, direct care staff. Um, oh yeah. So once upon, yeah, yeah. So once upon a time, oh, you were the, that the, the lowest level of lowest levels. <laughs> I mean, entry level of ABA, without a doubt. Many, many moons ago, for me, yeah. You know, you're walking into this home and you're introducing yourself to parents, and um, you know, the first time I went in and, and did the whole thing, uh, you know, it was um, I was nervous too. I was anxious because I wanted to provide a good service, and sure. I was. Um, really excited about it but you know from a parent perspective yeah you know how do you how do you turn your kid over to this person who's going to be in your house you know three hours a day four to five days a week you know in a lot of cases it it can be more it can be less but um you know one of the things that i've been really impressed about you know in recent years as we get you know more into developed models of care for um home-based treatment is that we have a lot of places that are designing really nice training programs for this frontline staff. Now, these frontline staff, the direct care staff, um, a lot of times they're college students. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're folks who are, have been working in child care and who have an interest in developmental disabilities, maybe autism specifically. Maybe they've worked as a paraprofessional. So you get some a variety of backgrounds. Um, a lot of these people, you know, from my experience, go on to actually uh, pursue, you know, longer careers in this field. So this is kind of the entryway into our field of behavior analysis, sometimes education, psychology, and some related fields. Uh, so a lot of times you'll see college students coming into this. Um, a lot of times this is their first experience in the, you know, in the professional world. Um, and there's a lot of excitement. So I, I see a lot of young people who are really excited to get started working with, with individuals, and they really take in the training that's provided. Now, uh, 
so, you know, variety of, uh, of folks, different training model. One of the things that I tell parents is talk to your, you know, your contact, the clinician that you're speaking with about the training model at the agency you're considering. I think it's unbelievably important. Unfortunately, in this day and age, like I said, in contemporary practice, we have a lot of agencies that have developed some really nice models of training out there. Um, I'd like them. I was impressed when I came on board about that, um, that we spent over a week with individuals teaching them the basics of what autism is, how to work with children, how to play with children, huge training component on appropriate play, developmentally appropriate play with kids as well as an introduction to applied behavior analysis and the data collection system. Now, if you're considering an, an agency and they're saying, you know, well, we do about five hours of, you know, some basic training on uh, CPR first aid and, um, you know, an intro to data collection, you know, I'd be a little bit leery about that, if, you know, and maybe consider the agency, you know, that you might also be talking with who has, you know, more of an intense training for their for their direct care staff. I think that's a hugely important component. Now, you asked about, you know, the difference between a certification versus training. I think certification in any field um, provides some level of, um, you know, consumer protection, if you will. So somebody's had to pass a test, they've had to read some material, and they've had to demonstrate a certain skill level. That's good. That's nice. Um, but I think there's a lot more to it when you talk about the, you know, an intensive training model from, you know, from different agencies, that they're taking the time to train people in the specifics of how to deliver quality service, as well as, you know, some more of those general topics, like I said, autism. Um, so you, you really do want to ask about the training, the hours, the amount of supervision. So you want folks to have training, you know, kind of in a classroom setting, if you will, and then you want them to be trained, um, in vivo that we call it, you know, actually shadowing another direct care staff. You want them to have some on-site training so there's a supervisor there watching the development of this, uh, this person, ensuring that they're gaining some skills. Something else that I see a lot of quality programs doing is they have, you know, competency checks. So, you know, as this person goes along in their training, they also have to fulfill certain requirements or certain competencies, you know, um, can you tell us the basics of autism? Can you tell us the basics of applied behavior analysis? Can you tell us how to problem solve, you know, when an individual uh, might engage in a tantrum behavior? Can you tell us the basics of data collection? Um, so it's really nice when you have an agency that has a, a good model of training. At least you have, um, you know, uh, some, uh, some certainty that these folks are coming in with a base level of knowledge and some practice. Um, so I think that's really important. Certification, RBT, Registered Behavior Technician, we are seeing more of that um, come into place. I think that's a, a nice element, again, some consumer protection there. But even someone with an RBT, I would still ask about the um, on-site training that they've received at their agency. Yeah, I think, you know, for me, that becomes the biggest stressor. I mean, like, I... I think people don't always realize that the RBT, you can get these certifications for the frontline staff that is solely through online curriculum. And, you know, I go back to, to, to you know, you, you put me back to my early days. You know, I was, I was the 22-year-old kid out of college, first mm -hmm. job out of college, starting an ABA. You know what? I had related experience, but I didn't have ABA experience. 
And, mm-hmm. you know, there was no frontline certification. It, it wasn't, you know, I, I went through a two-and-a-half-week training, you know, probably about the same length of what AST's overall new hire training is. And I, I don't think it was any one thing that did it for me. You know, it, I benefited a little bit from classroom instruction. I benefited a little bit from shadowing. I, I benefited a little bit from each thing they gave me. Um it really was this like overall package. And so like, I've always been biased that, you know, this, this certification is great. And I, and I, a fan of the consumer protection piece that it gives us without a doubt, but it doesn't to me, tell me quality, you know, Mm -hmm. at least clinical quality. And and Mm -hmm. I feel like that's where sometimes there's still this fine line of like, well, really what is quality training? Because, the, the part of this that I deal with all the time with, with uh, the health plans I talk to is, you know, they kind of come to me and they say, well, Rob, to use you as the example, you're a 22-year-old kid hired to come provide these services. What makes you qualified? How does that make for a medically reimbursable treatment? Um, and so I feel like that's, you know, with with answering that question, like we almost have to kind of get into the the second half of this equation and talk about like that role of the BCBA and like what does the BCBA actually do to allow a 22 year old like me out of college to to provide treatment? Right, and that's uh, that actually that's you're right. The next logical step here is to ask about that supervision. So mm-hmm. the there's a supervision are important, and that's a, that's what parents need to ask about. You know, once they're going through and you know asking about this direct care staff. Well, how much oversight does this BCBA provide this direct care staff, and how much have they worked with them before? Um, going to be individualized, although there will be some general um, skills that a direct care staff will have. You know, from case to case. But this is where we start talking about, you know, we get a little bit more technical and we start talking about measures of integrity and reliability. And we've talked about Mm -hmm. that on previous podcasts, but I think that's where this becomes really important. This is when the BCBA comes into the home and they should be providing supervision, however many hours they've identified, on a regular basis. And one of the things they should be doing is observing that direct care staff working with the child and providing in feedback within the session. You're doing this correctly. You need to change this up. Let's move this around a bit. Um, so it should be an active process. Um, also reviewing the data. Um, a lot of quality programs now, like I said, when they're doing in check, integrity and reliability checks, they're actually going through checklists. You know, is this direct care staff providing reinforcement immediately after appropriate behavior? Is this direct care staff member recording data immediately? You know, there's all of these checks that research does tell us, you know, gives us a higher probability of having a high-quality program that these board-certified behavior analysts are trained to do. So you want to make sure that that supervision is there, it's scheduled regularly, and it's an active process. And you can actually watch it happen. Mm Um, you know, if you know to look for, you know, what's going on right now, you know, what kind of checklist are you using, competencies, you know, things like that. Um, so parents can look for this active process of supervision. 
you know, I, tell me if you, what your thoughts on this. I mean, because you kind of articulated in, in, a, in a different way what I've always kind of thought, which is I feel like when you look at, you know, 22-year-old me, you look at that frontline person, it's not that I'm, I'm an expert in ABA at that age because I'm not and that I wasn't. But it was like it was more so that I was really well trained on how to follow a process. And because mm-hmm. I'm this, like, it's not my child, and, you know, it's, it's someone I'm working with. I can, I can be a little bit more objective. It's a little less personal. Not to say I, I didn't care, but it's, it's, it's different when it's your own kid. Um, mm-hmm. it, because I've been trained on this process, I can kind of be a little bit more objective in how I look at things, and particularly got really well trained in data collection. If I have those things down under good supervision, I can really implement the program well. And those always struck me as the core things that a frontline paraprofessional or frontline behavior tech or whatever you want to call them, like it, it, that's what's different than them versus you know, a parent implementing this treatment or just like a random person implementing treatment. It's, it's things that they're specifically trained in, which can be generalized to so many different domains under that supervision. Absolutely. Completely agree with you. There's a certain level of skill that's there. Um, once you develop the skills, like you said, implementing skill acquisition programs, so learning how to teach children using the various techniques that we, that we use. Right. So, you know, we teach frontline staff how to appropriately use things like token economies, how to appropriately mm-hmm. withhold attention for challenging behavior, um, how to appropriately use different prompting levels. Some kids do better with a verbal prompt. Some kids do better with a, mm-hmm. you know, partial physical. Let's get technical. And these are things that, you know, a direct care staff, once trained, can problem solve through. They get very skilled. And, you know, I was the mm-hmm. same way. Once trained in that low loss method, I could, you know, I yeah. could record my – I knew how to problem solve about the prompts. I knew how to work my prompt hierarchies. Um, so they become very skilled at that. And I think you make a very good point about that level of objectivity, too, because um, it's, it's really necessary there. Um, so that, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, when you get too close, you, you know, when you get too close um, to the issue, you know, we've seen a lot of parents who are physicians, you know, who br- still bring their child to another pediatrician for an ear infection because, you know, they want right. an objective perspective, you know, and I think that's the same thing yeah. here. We're in someone's home. It's personal. It's a more intimate relationship, mm-hmm. but we want the professionals who are remaining objective. That way we can help your child and we can help you learn the skills to generalize these things we're teaching. So, yeah, I mean, a good direct care staff is so, so valuable. Um, you know, once you get them, you want to hold on to them forever. And usually, you know, yeah. they're, they're, look, they're looking to start that career, so they're moving up their career. Sure. Ladder. It gets pretty exciting. But, um, but yeah, yeah, it's important to have that, that level of skill and ability in a direct care staff. You know, it's funny, you you, you – mentioned something that I didn't think of right away, but for me, you know, I, I feel like I've, I've said this to probably 30 different families, 30 different IEP teams, you know, the skill for me that we trained in training, that I learned in my training, that, it, you know, if I was going to kind of say, what was that one thing I learned um, that really came back to help me time and time again, you know, I think people always expected me to say reinforcement, but it was prompting. 
I felt like learning how to prompt what a prompt hierarchy is, it, it didn't matter if that prompt hierarchy changed from kid to kid, but when I got that down and when I understood that, I felt like that was like the biggest leap I took in my skills to be able to implement tons of different programs because, you know, that just really just made a difference in how I responded to negative behavior, how I prompted positive behaviors, how I taught, how I reacted. I mean, it just, everything came back to that prompt hierarchy for me. Um, I'm curious if there's any strategies or skills like that, that you kind of look at as the, you know, this was kind of like the, 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 uh, like a, an anchor, uh, a, a foundational skill that like you really want to make sure your people get this, your frontline person has this because that just will help um, all these other areas of treatment. It, you know, I think you hit it right there because prompting to me is the essence of learning. If you know how to mm-hmm. appropriately prompt and like you said, moving up and down a prompt hierarchy essentially is just understanding how much support that learner needs. So you yeah. know, maybe you start by providing more support and then you kind of pull back on it as they, that's learning right there. That's the, the truest form, I think, you know, and when you learn how to do that and you can see the kids begin to behave independently, mm-hmm. whether it's you know, math or reading or dressing, feeding themselves or whatnot, um, that's when things get really exciting. And when those, you have those aha moments as a direct care staff, you're like, oh, my God, mm-hmm. this is it. Um, yeah. You know, I think, yeah, I think understanding, you know, most importantly around skill acquisition programs, like you said, um, understanding the needs of the learner, and that's that's where prompting comes in. You know, how does this how does this individual learn? Like I said, we have some kids that do very well with visual prompts, some kids that do well with gestural prompts, things like that. So your direct care staff will, you know, kind of learn the needs of your child and how you you know the patterns of learning that your child exhibits. One of the things that got me really excited as a direct care staff is once I started to record data and I could look at the data over time and realize, oh, my God, here's a trend. You know, here's what I'm doing is actually, you know, this this child started out earlier in the week um, unable to, you know, identify the color blue. By Tuesday, you know, they were getting it 50% correct, and by Thursday it's 75% correct. Um, you know, that also reinforces me, like, we're, we're going in the right direction. This is fantastic. So for a direct care staff to be able to understand the importance of recording data appropriately, um, I think mm-hmm. that's huge. Um, yeah. The, the thing. And then, um, you know, understanding uh, management of, of challenging behavior, you know, because we have a lot of little kids who, um, you know, engage in challenging behavior, and so you want to, you know, know how to manage that, you know, when to um, withhold attention, when to redirect. Um, I think those are, that's really important as well. But um, once you have that skill set, you know, that, that understanding of, of learning and prompting and things like that, and then redirection, I think those are some of those basic things that generalize really well. And once you've worked with a few mm-hmm. kids, um, you recognize how changing the environment changes the behavior, and I think that's the overarching, you know, theme. Um, it's about changing yeah. the environment. And so once you get that and you understand the impact of what that actually means and that you are the environment, um, I, I think that's another nice aha moment that um, 
you know, that are directly sure. aesthetic out of there. And, and once they see it, then you can never unsee it. <laughs> with, with um, you know, I want to kind of go back to the BCBA component. And, and there, there's, um, you touched on something that that relates to kind of my, my number one question. I, I feel like one of the arguments, you know, well, let me go back a second. You know, I, I feel like when we listen to a BCBA's role, there's a lot of stuff that needs to be done right there on the scene, me directly observing this kid in treatment with this behavior tech. And there's a bunch of things I need to do behind the scenes. Data analysis is, is definitely done better from behind the scenes. Um, there's still some guided feedback and, and direction that I need to provide the frontline tech behind the scenes, updating treatment plans, materials, et cetera. There, there's a balance of what I need to do kind of more for my office versus in the field itself. Um, and one of the big debates I've heard so far is, um, is level of supervision more important than the quality of the supervisor you have? And is there a minimum level of supervision someone should get versus a, um, you know, a best practices number versus a maximum level. And I feel like this idea of how much supervision should a BCBA actually be giving, and more importantly, be giving face-to-face -face in the field. I feel like that's an argument that I um, keep finding myself um, a part of um, in my day-to-day -day kind of conversations. Um, and, and there's a lot of extremes that I hear people quote. Um, what are your thoughts on that? You know, is there a, this is what a parent should expect in terms of frequency and duration and, um, and I guess as a percent of direct intervention um, of, of direct supervision from a BCBA? Right. Well, the, um, the Behavior Analyst Certification Board has some guidelines out regarding the different models in which um, applied behavior analysis um, can be delivered. Um, and they have recommendations regarding supervision. You know, there are different ratios depending on the model that you have and how many hours you have. Um, this, is what's, this is what's challenging about individualized programs. Um, if you, uh, you know, if you're just starting out and uh, you're a new case, maybe it's a relatively new direct care staff, I would assume that the BCBA supervision, you might have more face-to-face -face supervision getting that um, client going, ensuring that uh, progress is being made and that your frontline staff um, are, you know, comfortable, competent, and um, delivering programs with integrity. Now, where I see a little bit more leeway is if you have a seasoned direct care staff, maybe they've been working in the field for a few years, you've been working mm -hmm. with them. Um, and they have, you know, they have passed, you know, a number of competencies. You understand their skill set, their level. Um, you get them started on a case. Um, you can actually, in, you know, for example, in our case at AST, we actually have um, electronic data collection, which is fantastic because it allows our BCBAs to log in and look at, you know, skill acquisition programs and behavior reduction programs, you know, in real time. We can see what's actually going on session to session. Um, you know, when you have a, a really, uh, you know, seasoned uh, team, uh, that's when I think, well, you know, 
there probably is um, less face-to-face supervision that's needed when you compare it to, you know, somebody who might be newer or maybe a more challenging case. Maybe sure. there's a kid who's displaying more uh, uh, higher levels of challenging behavior. Um, that might require more oversight. I think the a gauge is, you know, making sure that your client is making progress at a good rate, mm-hmm. um, making mm-hmm. sure that your um, your levels of integrity are maintained. So if you're doing weekly checks or bi-weekly checks, that those checks are maintained at the same level. So, you know, you have high levels of integrity. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, I think there is some difference there. I think it's hard to pin down a number for every single case because there are so many variables yeah. in play. But the indicators sure. that you want to look at is that progress. And, you know, some of the... When you're look, like I said, when you're looking at um, integrity checks, that's the other thing that the, the BCBA needs to ensure. Now, one of the things that I get really excited about in this day and age, you know, when you talk about the need for face-to-face supervision, in some cases, it might just be that the direct care staff has a couple of questions about some programming. You know, does that require, you know, the the supervisor coming out and spending two hours? Um, you know, at the home, maybe not. Maybe that's just remoting in. So we have some really nice platforms that are HIPAA compliant that allow us to mm-hmm. remote in, maybe take a look at the take a look at the session and provide some feedback. Now, I think that's a great option for a lot of families, especially families who are in remote areas. Um, maybe mm-hmm. they are concerned about supervision, and you know, maybe that direct care staff does have some questions, um, and they need to access some supervision. That's the other thing. If the direct care staff is indicating that they have some questions or maybe they've had to, um, you know, put a program on hold because they're, they're uncertain of how to move forward, they need to be able to access that BCBA pretty quickly, um, you know, to get some answers with four hours or so. And I think that's where technology can actually really help because we have these platforms where the uh, BCBA can actually, you know, remote in from wherever they are. Um, take a look at the program, what's going on, and also help to problem solve. Um, so I think that's a nice option, too, uh, if you're, you know, depending on your situation and the needs of the, the case and the direct care staff, uh, we also have some ways to assist in problem solving um, that might be outside or in addition to the, you know, the typical supervision hours. So we're at my favorite part of every show we do together. It's I get to officially put you on the spot with some question <laughs> that completely catches you off guard and makes you feel like, man, why did he ask that? So, uh, <laughs> so here, here is, <laughs> so here's my question for you. And this is, you know, and, and as everyone knows, like, this is the question I would ask you, like, while we're having dinner together or having a drink and just kind of catching up if it was just the two of us. Mm-hmm. I have struggled with the BACB puts out guidelines about best practices for supervision, and then we create these guidelines based off all of the research, yet if you look closely at the majority of ABA research out there, the level of supervision the BACB prescribes does not match the level of BCBA supervision in the research study itself. Yeah. What? How do I? How do I come to grips with that as a behavior analyst? Um, you know, I think those. I think those are some of the things that we're still figuring out. You know, making. Yeah. 
you know, making some broad generalizations, uh, you know, recommending these models. You know, we didn't even have those mm-hmm. guidelines years ago. I mean, certainly when you and I were doing this, there was no guidelines yeah. around. You know, there was the no models. BCBA. No, there was no. There was no. There was no BCBA. <laughs> I don't even know what they called me back then. I don't even know what I was. Um, right. I was just a staff member or something. I don't know. Um, you know, I, I think that's what we're still figuring out, and I think there is a lot of research yeah. to be done regarding the amount of supervision for the variety of, you know, if we wanted to, you know, group some cases, you know, like, yeah. um, you know, intensive early intervention, you know, 30 to 40 hours a week, what does that look like as opposed to mm-hmm. uh, you know, a five to 10 hour a week program? There's going to be yeah. substantial distances there, you know? Um, it takes a lot, uh, there's a lot of different things that go into those programs. Like you said, not only that face-to-face supervision, but the behind-the-scenes stuff, Um Two completely different things there, um, and I think that's where we need to get better at. How do we maintain a certain level of quality? What's acceptable? What's reasonable? Um, you know, taking into account caseloads and report writing and all of those things we talked about. I don't think I have an easy answer to that, and I think you know, yeah. as agencies, it's our job to you know make some recommendations based on the data that we have you know, regarding our program. So I think that's where we could, you know, probably contribute to the field and, you know, talking with the sure. funders and, and not like you do. I think that's probably where we could step it up and, you know, talk about the different supervision models that might, uh, that would provide us with uh, with quality, uh, still allow for quality service provision. Do you think that we could ever get to a place, you know, one of the things, that, to me, one of the, the critical differences between the research and the um the guidelines is the research is based off of treatment, like a treatment package, and the guidelines mm-hmm. are based off of kids' ages and developmental needs. What, mm-hmm. do, you, do you ever envision a world where supervision recommendations are delivered based on the treatment plan versus child's age and development? You know, I've been talking about this a lot in terms of, you know, behavior analysts and the training that they get and the scope of, of yeah. training that, you know, master's level behavior analysts get. Um, I think we should be a little bit broader in our scope to better understand, you know, child development and things of that nature. Um, mm-hmm. In terms of, you know, aligning uh, the treatment program with, you know, the various, uh, you know, developmental stages and ages. I think we need a better holistic model, to be very honest, because you also need to take yeah. into account the family's needs, you know. So it's not sure. just that we're treating, mm. you know, this one kid with autism. You know, this one kid with autism right. has siblings and parents and whatnot, and some of our parents need more support and more parent training than others. Um, so I think there is more work to be done on, again, the ideal way to provide these services and, you know, the different models. I think there's more to it than just what the BACB has put out, to be very honest. I think yeah. there's some work to be yeah. done there. Um, but, you know, I like to, you know, what we've been promoting here is talking about, you know, the family um, as a whole unit mm-hmm. and helping that family through this, you know, journey of autism, if you will. So I think we need to take that into consideration, too, which only muddies the waters more. So then, you know, what does that mean in terms of hours and supervision? I'm not sure, but I think... Yeah, but you- it's it's hard to put in writing at this time. 
Yeah, but you know, I think you just touched upon another, you know, a quality, an aspect of quality that I wasn't even thinking about, you know, 35 minutes ago when we started this this conversation is, you know, I I hear a lot of people talk about parent education. And I'm and I'm starting to over these last few years really think that's the wrong term of quality programming. I feel like the term needs to be parent involvement. And I think mm-hmm. parent involvement is not me teaching a parent a specific strategy with integrity. That that that's certainly part of it, but it's it's what you're talking about is um providing support to families who have a whole world occurring around them that is bigger than just our treatment and not just having treatment that is isolated to this 10 hours a week or 15 hours a week or even 40 hours a week because there's way more hours in in the day and the week than just 40. And Mm -hmm. it's not about the parents learning to be a line tech themselves, but but what are we doing as professionals to provide this overall guidance and support that you're describing? And I feel like I see too much black and white. Well, parents are involved in parent training or they're not involved with parent training versus, no, 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 this is how parents are going to be involved. Here's how we include parents. Here's how they support things. And I, I don't think there's one way to do it, but like that seems like like within this supervision arena, like it we all like assume it's supposed to be there, but we don't really give much guidance about how to do it, especially not you know, PCPAs aren't trained to do it. But that feels like a big missing piece or a miscategorized piece in everything, what exactly what you're describing. Yeah, no, I think, you know, and as you see, like, more health healthcare models. So, you know, when you go into your general practitioner now, they're asking about support mm-hmm. systems. They're asking about, you know, your healthy habits and, try, you know, all mm-hmm. of these different things and, you know, providing this more holistic model, if you will. And I think that, you know, that's slowly where we're inching toward, but we need to get better at it because you're right. A lot of our, a lot of our treatment plans include, you know, six hours of parent training. Do the parents understand that? reinforcement must occur within five seconds after an adaptive behavior, you know, all of those things. Um, but, you know, again, back in the day when I was doing it, I was, um, you know, going out with parents and actually, you know, shadowing them and providing support to them and, you know, meeting with parents and grandparents about, you know, what what was going to happen at Christmas and helping to find them, right. you know, hook them up with some different support groups and going out to talk to support groups and things like that. Um just because there's, there are different needs there in each family. I mean, we're not even getting into the diversity issue, you know, with families who are from diverse backgrounds, you know, having different needs and oftentimes yeah. having a hard time accessing our services. Um, I think that our science, applied behavior analysis, actually has a lot more to offer than what we're what we're currently doing right now. And I think if we looked at it from, you know, more a holistic kind of, program for a family, yeah. I think that our outcomes would be better. I think we'd be more efficient at what we're doing. Um, you know, and I think that, you know, that's probably where we're headed, just not quick enough for, for my, for my case. <laughs> you know, I think, you know, it, this, I, I wasn't, again, wasn't thinking this when we started, but, you know, one of the big pushes that, that I've been pushing for, and I think, I think you and I have talked about this before is, you know, I've, I, 
I, to me, the discrepancy between the research and the BACB guidelines, the discrepancy between what we're talking about is in the word supervision itself. I think mm-hmm. that's the wrong word. I wish mm-hmm. our field would do away with that word altogether because that is not what a BCBA does. I, I believe mm-hmm. a BCBA provides clinical direction, not supervision, mm-hmm. because clinical mm-hmm. direction incorporates everything you talked about. It, and, and, and in addition to um, the, the, fa- the, the holistic piece that, that I know you're implying but, but didn't use the term specifically is the coordination of care. It, mm-hmm. it incorporates coordinating with that OT, the speech pathologist. You know, I, I think different people have different perspectives about the idea of like that one-stop shop. I want to be the one-stop shop for everybody. And, you know, I think that's great when you're good at it. But not every ABA company should be doing speech and OT services. They may just not have that expertise. But a good BCBA knows how to coordinate with those people and has good partnerships. And good agencies have good partnerships in the community with those types of providers. To me, that's all part of clinical direction. Um, Making sure my speech goals are aligned with my ABA goals and partnering with those other providers to now provide that oversight. working with the parents to work on this parent involvement, whatever's appropriate for the child and for the treatment plan, making sure that the, the direction of the program is correct and there's integrity behind it. Like to me, like supervision, it just feels like the wrong word. And I feel like because we use that word, we are getting ourselves into trouble with some of these distinctions or, or in terms of trying to define what the guidelines and standards should be. Right. I mean, if you think about your general practitioner, you know, they refer you out to specialists. Um, you know, so you have all, and you, you go out and you see your different specialists and maybe get an MRI or maybe get x-rays, you get these different lab tests that mm-hmm. are done. Um, and then you, you go back into your general practitioner and they're responsible for, you know, kind of coordinate everything and making sure, you right. know, that you know, your prescriptions are in line and that the therapies that you're, you know, that you're using or the surgeries that you're having, that everything is coordinated. And I think, I agree with you. I think that we're in that same position as well. Um, for a child with autism, you know, we are, uh, you know, the evidence-based intervention. We have the most empirical support, but that also requires yeah. coordinating all of these other services to make sure that, yeah, we're all headed in the right direction, which is, developmentally appropriate behavior, meeting developmental milestones, um, yeah. and making sure that everybody has the tools and everything that, that's necessary to get there, because we all have the same goal. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, mean, I think clinical direction and, um, you know, I think that's a nice way to put it. And, unfortunately, we all come from, you know, those academic places where, you know, you use the right. term supervision and everything. So I think I think yeah. you know, that's still left easier. And if we move into the medical model more and more, I think we do need to come up with some better terminology to really relate to others, you know, what it is we're doing, you know, from a molar perspective. You know, you take a look back and you say, wow, <laughs> you know, it, right. it's more than just, you know, uh, five skill acquisition goals, two behavior reduction goals, and a parent training goal. That's not at all what a behavior analyst is responsible for. It's much, much more than that. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, and we we are just – I think we're evolving so quickly as a field. And, you know, to – 
you know, we're, we're kind of coming up on our time here, but I mean, in, in summation for me, I feel like almost the, the biggest sign of a quality provider these days almost feels like someone who understands the changes happening around them. Like, mm-hmm. I, I feel like I meet a lot of people who are still living like it's 2000 or 2010. And it's like, we, everything is evolving so quickly in, especially in the last, I would say 10 years that Mm -hmm. if you know, just knowing that things are changing and trying to adapt to the changes around us, both from a research point of view, as well as from like a medical model point of view, it, it almost strikes me as that's potentially one of the biggest indicators for a family to look at is, do you understand how the role of the BCBA has changed in this last decade? Right. Yeah. I mean, and maybe especially for folks who are our age who've been doing this for a while, it looks completely (laughs) different. You know, (laughs) folks who've come into it the last five years, you know, maybe they do have the, maybe they do have the awareness, um, it didn't yeah. look like this, you know, 10 years ago. And so the awareness of how we fit in with the bigger healthcare model is incredibly mm-hmm. important because are we have responsible to those other healthcare providers, integration and coordination of care, like you said. Um, so having that big picture, um, you know, framework, ability to, to think and conceptualize things in that way, I think that's a very good point to make sure that mm-hmm. your clinician is aware it's not just the kid with the treatment program in the house five hours a week. It's much, much bigger than that. Um, yeah. And, yeah, it looks completely different from when I started. <laughs> well, and, and, you know, and that's the crazy thing is, like, at the way you and I are talking about, like, when we started, like, you and I are not that old. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, I sometimes feel old because of how young everyone yeah. is in ABA, but, <laughs> but you and I are not that old. And so it, it just goes to reiterate how quickly things have changed and how aggressively they've changed just in a 20-year period of time. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I I have to say just too quickly that um, a a lot of that can be attributed to those parents who, you know, got out there and advocated and got that insurance reform, did all of those things, um, and, you know, really propelled folks out you know, into the larger world of where we are now, you know, being the, the evidence-based treatment for autism, you know, the the place to be. Um, if you're looking for autism care, those parents and those advocates just work tirelessly yeah. to get us where we are now. So, yeah, I think it's our responsibility to keep that momentum going. I mean, these the listeners don't realize that when you and I finish this show, that is literally the conversation that you and I are going to have because we're going to be doing a presentation for everyone at AST on medical necessity. And I think that's, that's one of the points is who really developed? I mean, I, I sometimes question who really developed and improved medical need of ABA? Was it us as professionals or was it the parents? And obviously yeah. both both played a role, but like, I think understanding that is is huge to understanding how ABA services are viewed and also how they should be delivered. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. We'll be spreading our knowledge, you know, all of this, all these many years of experience here. 
um, pretty soon to, to the younger folks <laughs> in our community. Um, but yeah, I don't think, you know, we couldn't lose sight because a lot, you know, there was also a lot of us who, you know, um, my mentors, many who, you know, didn't even get the BCBA credential because they were there before it happened, right. um, you know, sure. that, you know, that, that worked on those cases as well and that advocated and that, you know, mm-hmm. really, um, were big proponents of the science um, and, and really helped to convince people um, in the right places to, to get this service out to the greater, um, to the greater, you know, folks out there. A lot of yeah. work. A lot of work, a lot of changes, more to come. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. you know, I, I feel like every time we, we talk on this show, it's like, just the beginning of the next thing and the next thing. And, and then, you know, that, mm-hmm. that's what makes this, um, I, you know, I think that's what makes this challenging to so many of our families. I mean, I just spoke to one last night where, you know, they themselves were saying things have changed so much and, you know, they weren't even looking specifically at, you know, AST has changed. They were really commenting on the health plan, the resources available to them, how we've had to respond to those changes, et cetera, et cetera. And we, you know, we ended our conversation in this like great place with this great outcome and, and they're feeling great. But, you know, that was that big takeaway is man, like so much has happened in such a short period of time. And we need to be like looking forward to stay on top of what's coming next. Um, cause I do feel like there's more coming next, whether it be from the BACB updating things, the way you're, the way you, you and I have started to talk about, whether it's be new research coming out, the, how the health plan and respond to that, how legislation changes, you know, all the stuff is, is interconnected. Absolutely. And like you said, awareness from the clinicians of this greater world, I think, um, is important. We have a lot of information coming at us. Um, but we have a lot of great resources, too. So having folks like you out there talking to providers and clinicians and um, networking and having things like this, like a podcast available, Facebook groups, um, you really have to stay connected to the larger community. And I think that, um, that's yeah. imperative for clinicians as well as for parents. Well, I think that's a great place for us to end. Thank you, as always. It's so great to talk to you. Um, you know, I love giving everyone our little like snapshots into, you know, that those uh, those conversations we always get into, and you know, timing of this is great because we'll probably be getting into like three of these next week when we see each other face to face. So um, we will we'll definitely talk to you next time, and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing you next week. All right, thanks a lot, Rob. It's been great. All right, everybody. Uh, we're going to call it a day here. This has been a, a big one. We've covered a lot and at the same time really not covered that much. And, and I think that's why we want to keep doing this show for everybody um, because um, it is not simple. It is not easy. Um, and I feel like we just scratched the surface of really what you should be looking for from us as providers um, just by getting into the training, the roles, the responsibilities of these two critical people that come into your house every day. Um, and there's so much more to get into, and, and we definitely will in, in future shows. Um, if you have questions in the meantime, please don't hesitate to reach out to us. More info at autismtherapies.com. 
we've got the Autism Spectrum Therapies Facebook page. Um, so both of them are great avenues to get in touch with us. Questions for me, questions for Hannah, uh, or even uh, questions for Christina, who I reference all the time, who kind of keeps all this going from behind the scenes. Um, we're happy to talk to you guys and, and answer however, um, whatever questions you have and help however we can. So in the meantime, have a great week, have a great weekend, and we're going to talk to you guys next time. Take care. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of All Autism Talk. For additional information and resources about autism, visit www.learnitsystems.org backslash family. Know an inspiring group or individual we should talk to? We would love to hear more from you at moreinfo at autismtherapies.com. Want to hear more? Listen to previous episodes at www.allautismtalk.com. All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time.